Today's sermon title is obviously Absalom's Conspiracy. In order to share about this conspiracy, I have to cover three chapters. But I think it's important that even beyond the three chapters, chapter 12, we need to be reminded by uh, Nathan, the prophet, who's sharing, uh, who's rebuking David. And do you remember that? When as soon as David said, I have sinned against the Lord, nothing else. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sins. Therefore, you will not die, although he deserved to die. And we are so glad for that incredible mercy and grace. And many of us came to know Christ because of grace, because of mercy, fully being awake to that reality, spiritual reality. But there's something else Nathan shared. Because what you have done, the sword will never leave the household of your kingdom, your, your family. And then he also shared that you have done this secret thing, meaning adultery, with Bathsheba in a secret way, but God will shame you doing the, the sexual sins, having your son doing sexual sins publicly. And we'll find out a little more about what Absalom would do, actually. So remember that what we learned from that, from that passage was that God's forgiveness is real and thorough. And our final destiny, and that we belong to him, and the relationship is never broken. Even the fellowship is restored by our confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But today's passage is all about consequences of sin that God uses as Heavenly Father, loving Father's discipline. Discipline is never the same as the punishment, eternal punishment is a damnation. God has forgiven us. God has let us come into his presence with fellowship and grace and love and steadfast love for us. But the question lingers. Why does God use the consequences of sin the discipline is heavy-handed on us. And sometimes we think that God's too cruel because of that. But whenever we think about our own parenting, uh, the parenting seminar this coming Saturday revealed quite a bit also too. We realize there is a truth in what the scripture says if Loving 
father, loving parent, would not withhold discipline because the, what it means to truly love our children is to build into the character. So there are three passages, three chapters are all about the consequences of sin. God's mercy is still there. But we'll draw lessons at the end of this. But uh, four things to lead to Absalom's conspiracy. The first one is rape. Uh, Amnon lusts after his half-sister Tamar. Tamar was beautiful. And he used the word, I love Tamar. This is one of those infatuation because of the looks and it's it's uh, many times just fully self-centered lust, but oftentimes even our, our generation used love. And he actually thought that he was really loving her and couldn't get to her. So what happened was that his cousin, Jonadab, kind of helped him very uh, skillfully strategic guy. You know what you can do? Pretend you're, you're ill and your king, your father David will come. If he comes, tell him that you and your sister Tamar to make something to, to give him strength. So David sends Tamar and Tamar makes the bread and Absalom com- commands everyone to leave the chamber and then t- asked Tamar to bring the food to feed him, and he gets to her. Obviously, Tamar resists. You cannot do such an evil thing against. But he rapes her. And there is an interesting remark that we all know instinctively so true. After he violated her, Scripture said, his hatred toward Tamar grew stronger than his love for Tamar. What he felt attracted to Tamar. So get up and get out. And Tamar weeps and you cannot send me. You will do worse thing against me if you just send me away. She weeps all the way through Absalom's her false brother's house. And Absalom receives her and comforts her. Don't say anything to her, but intense hatred with rage. Obviously, we all feel that. Something happens to our sister, our kids, we'll feel that. right. The second incident is actually after two years. I want us to really go put ourselves in in that shoes and feel this rather than quickly judging Absalom to that because the more the sooner we do that we're going to distance distance ourselves from Absalom in such a way that we will not see the danger of sin 
What went on? It is implicit in the scripture and storytelling. David was angry. One sentence. What did David do? About this injustice that happened. Nothing. And Absalom waited two years, two long years. And he finally comes out with this plot, premeditated plan to gather all king's sons in sheep, uh, basically, when, when, when the season comes that they have to basically get a haircut for the sheep, right? So it's a celebratory time, but he insists that all the king, uh, king's sons will come and help him, join him. But if he say, I want king, I want my brother Amnon to come to help me, then he will be, become too suspicious, right? So he will ask intentionally, King, I want you and your servants to help me. Come, or I will become burden to you. Just go. Then at least your sons, all the king's sons came, and he was plotted, and he gave them wine, and then commanded his, his servants to kill Amnon and Amnoni, and a disaster happened. He fled, and he went to Geshur, and stayed there for three years. After three years, the broken relationship is stuck. David doesn't know what to do. Once again, this is implicit. David is stuck in between the two things. As a king, he needs to do the right thing. Bring justice. Be a righteous ruler and king, which means he needs to bring Absalom to justice. But he hasn't done that because of his own sexual sins. Maybe he felt guilty even toward Amnon's, and then also sympathy to, toward him. So he didn't do anything. But and yet, Absalom is the son, second heir now. Amnon was older. Now Absalom's supposed to be heir. So he's stuck with everything in here. And Absalom, he doesn't want to get killed. And at the same time, he doesn't like the fact that he's doesn't have any relationship with the family. He couldn't go to even Jerusalem, so he's being stuck. And Joab, his commander-in-chief, the chief of the staff, basically, decides to intervene with a plot and sends a wise woman and tells a story about her two sons who are going against each other. And then finally, David sees through the story and said, did Joab put you into this? The woman says, yes. So actually, because of all that, Absalom 
has been brought back to Jerusalem. But David is not ready to deal with the real issue. And he said, he, I give you grant to bring him back, but never ever bring him into my presence. That's a broken relationship. And then another two years passed. And Absalom is thinking, it was great to be back in Jerusalem, but it, this is not a real life. I'm, I'm existing, I'm not living. Because I can't even come into the presence of king and my family. Uh, he probably deep in, uh, in his heart, maybe he wanted even real forgiveness, real uh, reconciliation. So after two years, uh, having tried so many times to get Joab's attention to talk to uh, his father, David, to give him great access, Joseph, Joab doesn't even come to him. So he burns his barley field, finally gets his attention. Joab comes to him, why have you done this? And obviously, this is not my life. And he gives, gives an ultimatum. Give me either death or let me give me the access to king. He brings him and David kisses him. But this kiss is not a full reconciliation. Reluctant heart. David is to harden against the issues right now. And then in the meantime, there is a, the last part of the chapter 14 is the mentioning about how handsome Absalom was, especially his hair. His hair was not only thick or long. Every time when he finally cut, it was a several pounds. If there was a GQ magazine in Israel, he will be on front page and every month, every year. And his popularity grew. But in the, men, in the meantime, now living in two years of Jerusalem, um, ha having done that, and then king gives me gives him this reluctant acceptance. His true motive, maybe deepened down in heart, is finally coming out. And I call it resentful ambition. Did Absalom had an idea for conspiracy way back then when he killed Abnon? No, I don't think so. Was he think, thinking about coup d'etat in Gesher? No, I do not think so. But at this point, he has already determined and his ambition was resentful and vindictive. Remember I said that biblical narrative, there is not a good guy and bad guy. 
like the cartoon characters, and the good, good character always remains good character, and bad character is always remains bad, bad character, character. Do you see yourselves and your anger as your vindictive reasons in Absalom's case? I do. With that backdrop, let's hear chapter 15, the beginning portion of it, which it will, we will be focusing. The two parts of this story, chapter 15, verse 1 through 6 is it's stealing the people's Israelites' hearts. Verse 1, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when anyone, any man had a dispute to come to before the king for judgment, Absalom would call, him, call to him and say, From what city are you? When, they, when he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were ju judge in the, in the land. Then every man with a dis dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came nearby to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus, Absalom did it all of Israel to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. There are some people who are reactive because of anger, the momentary passion, you know. But Absalom is another kind. Can you think of this? Four years of doing this every day. Planting the seeds of conspiracy. He doesn't say to everyone, people, King David is not good enough. You can't get justice one day. Let me be the king. No, he just plants the seeds. His revengeful ambition is now in action. What was that all about? Having chariot and horses, 50 men running ahead of him? This is pompous. Parade, royal parade. Okay, he puts it out. With this beautiful hair running with the hand, <laughs> with the wind. And everyone saw charisma. Oh, he is royal. He is awesome. He looks like a king already. How arrogant in his character, in his heart. And notice 
how patient and methodical Absalom is, is in this. Oh, it will take a, I mean, even if with our full anger, to be faithfully doing, doing this, getting up early in the morning and just suddenly planting the seeds, waiting for the people to come to the gate. This is from his evil heart. And let's remember that once again before we write him off. Let's think about how he justified in his heart. He is saying, I didn't get justice because my half-sister, her life is ruined. Beautiful Tamar. He loved Tamar so much when he became a father, he has a three sons and four, one daughter. He called, named the daughter Tamar after his half-sister. My dad, the king of Israel, didn't do a nothing. Didn't do anything. And all these people, look at these people, poor people, weak people, they are desperate for justice. I could do so much better job to bring justice to the land. Even the marginalized, even the dis disadvantaged people will receive mercy and justice from me. Yes, we could talk, our, talk to ourselves and really become convinced that our sins could be justified or rationalized. The second part is a secret day of coup. He's revolting against his father and the king. And notice how does it? Verse 7, And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, and David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspira conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The following message you will hear David packing up and running in hurry because of this crisis. 
And his, his life is faced with many challenges and sorrowful things, one after the other. But when you think about what just went on in this Absalom was cunning and skillful in his strategy. He couldn't do it alone, this coup. Four years of planting the seed. By the time four years passed, many were, uh, were already for him. Not only his good looks and charisma, but whatever that he did, and he really did stole the hearts of Israel away from king. And many of them went with them because of his popularity. But some of them went with him because of their resentful bitterness toward against the, against the king. Ahithophel might not be a, a known name to you, but if I say, do you know Bathsheba was forced into this compromising situation. And kind of in a way that um, power play, and if we have to bluntly name it, and that is adultery is actually rape too. If you were your, her grandfather, how would you feel? Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And he probably already felt this resentment. But he was one of the strategists, advisor, king's advisor, counselor, very skilled man, very wise man. But he went along with Absalom already. And notice how subtle his plans for conspiracy. He invited all these kids. Many of them didn't know anything about the secret plan. But they had to go along with him. By the time when trumpet was sounded and everyone felt fear, if, if they didn't go along with Absalom, they might, be, might, might get killed. Coup d'etat always is bloody, isn't it? What can we learn from this? It's too messy. It's too uh, uncomfortably real. I wish Bible always have a nice ending, right? But actually, if we really saw the reality of our lives, I am thankful for today's passage because today's passage is real. As our lives problem is real and our pain is real. Here's three lessons really quickly. Number one, consequences of sin show the damaging effect of sin. How we ought to take sins, regardless of how small and how big they are, our, take our, the sins in our lives seriously. 
Romans 8, verse 12 to 13, says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, the Preton writer, calls this a mortification of sin. To kill sin is utterly important, he writes, or else sin will be killing you. Have you noticed that Jesus mentioned the sin is likened to leaven in the bread, yeast in the bread? Why? Because when you put yeast, it's just this little thing. But as time passes by, it affects everything. The dough multiplies the effect of the leaven affects the, the whole dough to arise. Such is our small sin we overlook or rationalize. Oh, God has mercy, has forgiven me, although I go through this uh, painful experience of conse consequences of sin, I'll be okay. Because he forgives me. I have mercy of God. Only if we look at this, the reason for discipline is God, our Heavenly Father, wanting to teach us the deadly effect, how damaging, how hurtful the sin is to us. So we will not only be afraid of the power of sin, but we will be wise and vigilant enough to stay away from that. So think about um, teaching our children, especially teenagers, a danger of drug, a danger of any kind of party, you know, ecstasy or the new things are, I don't know what those are. But if you try once, we want to make sure that they don't have any kind of whatsoever curiosity to just try it, to feel like it. Or what if our ch children has, has it, experienced it? Or, you know, sniffing something, gas or something, experiencing it. Before it takes it to the further, we will get into that situation. And not only praying, but asking God, if necessary, brings pain to break him, to come back to, uh, come back to God, and to be fully restored. That's our parents' heart, right? So think about Heavenly Father's heart looking at us that we think sin is funny. And, and the people around us 
are too uptight. Because you don't know grace. God's grace is here. God's merciful. So, so you sin. But you're forgiven. Your grace, grace is there. But if we look at David's heart here, even knowing this, sin fees sin. His sin fees unto his sons, like father, like son. But at the same time, his son's sin to unto him makes him react with sin. Hurt people, hurt people. Same very famous phrase, right? The sinful people. Sin against sinful people. What do you think about sins in your life? I know I'll be the first one. I might yell at my kids sometimes and I might lose my temper. Uh, I'm not sensitive enough to my wife's needs. But you know, I'm trying my best. You understand. I'm not a bad guy. If I am continuing to have this attitude, sin grows in me. And one of these days, the, the heart that is affected by sinful thoughts and motivations will come out externally. Like 11, the yeast will grow. What's the wisdom in all this? I need to know how vulnerable I am to the power of sin. Brothers and sisters, you need to know how weak, how frail you are to the small sins that you disregard in your life. And to be able to open our eyes will be God's grace. Second lesson is this. Unresolved conflicts leave us vulnerable to the evil one's cunning schemes and to the deceitfulness of sin. Ephesians 4, 26-27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And some people think that this is a passage about marital life and the ideal young couples who try to resolve conflict. No, we can't go to bed unless we resolve. And 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, they still not resolve. <laughs> You know what the young couple was? I was the one. <laughs> and Kate shuts down if I press more. 
And not only this is just a marital life only, but the, let's look at the root word. The reason for uh, holding on to anger, bitterness is so dangerous. It gives devil an opportunity. The root word for, for that is a foot in the door. Have you had a salesman knocking on your door? And they, they call it foot in the door technique. You can't even answer much of anything. How are you doing today? And then their door is one inside, so you can't close the door. And if the devil puts one foot in our hearts, in our lives, he digs in more and more. Unresolved conflict, I mean, once again, this isn't an over thing, overnight thing that you, I have to just resolve. And then you demand that person. You're offended. I confess. You forgive. Forgive. <laughs> Reconcile. You can't do that. And that's why Romans 12, 8, as long as it depends on you, leave, live peaceably with everyone. Brothers and sisters, this is not easy. It's not somebody's, somebody's problem. It's my problem. When some, someone is not willing to reconcile, we go through so much pain. And our heart is embittered. It's so hard to let it go. And we say, I will eventually. But not now, not today, and not this month. Maybe not this year. And some people live like that for 10 years. Even with their siblings. You know some of them, right? Or father and son relationship. Or mother and daughter relationship. Not in contact with several years. Of former best friends. And leaving church because of these reasons. And devil gets a foothold. What happens? Our lives are destroyed. Eventually. You know how smart he is? He could destroy the church because of unresolved conflict. And then... Let me just quickly mention on in resolving, resolving conflict, we need to pursue full and real reconciliation with an open and full heart. Why? David went halfway. He kissed his son Absalom. Was it a full reconciliation? No, it wasn't. It's a, it was half-hearted. Lesson number three, our brokenness and past hurts should never be reason for rec rationalizing our sins, no matter how justifiable our cause may be. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. 
So in other words, Absalom might have this perception of his way is pure and justifiable. And not only Absalom, we could be one of those people who are deceived by our own self-rationalization. Sins done to us by others, without a doubt, leave us broken and hurt. And there are so many people I know did not have the parents I had, the circumstances I had growing up. Just horrible, horrific upbringing. And my heart goes out to them. But here's a big but. We are responsible for our own sin still. So in other words, those things that we experience should never be the reason for our justification for certain things that we do. I was the youngest one in the family, in doctor's family. And my sister, who is always talented in getting awards, and my brother, whose brain, who would get straight A's without trying. I was an athletic one. Athletics didn't count in this family. And I fell, not coming short, something missing, not smart enough. My opinions were not regarded as good thing. In the name of loving the youngest one, they had nicknames that is hurtful to me still. Troublemaker, rascal. I, I was broke a lot of things. <laughs> bad weather, yeah, I, di I did bad wet my bed because I was played so hard even during my elementary school days. So during my teenage years and my even young adult life, I became so angry about how I grew up. I became driven. And many of you don't even notice that I'm the youngest one. I don't have that characteristics. More like I'm, I'm like an eldest, right? And many, many people get surprised. I cannot use that as an excuse either hate my brother or hate my mom or having forgiven that let's I, I did I went through breakthrough and I cannot use it on other things and become driven rather than worshiping God and proving myself worth in the name of ministry in the name of that good things I would, I would sin what are yours would you think about the things that in your life that will give you excuse and justification 
And once you give in, in, it will become more and more, growingly more in your life. Before I close, I have this simple exhortation for our church family. When we think about this story, the wisdom that gives us is that although we are sinful community of sinful believers, sinful people, if we deal with our heart regularly and consistently with the God's grace that sin doesn't have a residue of un- unresolved conflicts or un- the undealt with relationships and anger and bitterness, our spiritual vitality will show in our relationships. How do you become a loving community? Become a perfect person, loving person to love others? No, learn to forgive each other. Accept each other with God's love, not with our standard. And here is a huge, uh, important the vision issue for our church. We want to be known not by our piety, how religious we are, but we want to be known by our love for one another because the absolutely amazing love of God for us. Yes, and this year's uh, spiritual direction, the vision for Crossway Church is to love one another deeply, reflecting God's love for us. Let's pray. In the quietness of this room, as you reflect and receive God's word, I want to gently urge you to not to dodge what God has spoken to you. Has he spoken to you about specific relationship? Or has he spoken to you about your attitude towards small sins in your life? Have you realized some of your past hurts became the reason for your rationalization, justification? Would you surrender all of them to you, to to God? And set them, put them down, lay them down at the foot of the cross. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to be even fully making sure that every sin is laid down. Any known sins, simply say, Lord Jesus, these are my sins. 
have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, we thank you for this reminder. Yes, we realize we're living in a sinful world in which many others have sinned against us and pained us. And we did, in reaction, sinned against them as well. But Lord Jesus, would you restore the vision of our church to be known for our love for one another, not because we're good people, but because we learned to love others from you, because you have first loved us. May that love compel us to forgive others. May that love compel us to be merciful to those who are broken, who are habitually sinned against us. And 70 times 7, teach us to forgive them and let go of our bitterness. And we also for, pray for courage to stand with clarity of vision for, to do what is right. Unlike David who is stuck and paralyzed in between the king's responsibility of a righteous ruler, bring justice to, to what's ha what, what has been done. With his love for his family and his, his guilt of his own sin. And we pray that we would be courageous to fess up, to make relationship right, to speak truth, to choose the right thing to do as the people of God. And Lord, have mercy on us sinners. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.